Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Futures relatively steady, even as the UAW initiates this unprecedented strike at select factories. Uh, yields a bit higher as China data comes in hot for once. Oil, 91.15. That's another year-to-date high. Triple which today should drive some volume. Our roadmap begins with a strike, though. Thousands of UAW workers hit the picket lines. The first walkout to hit the big three all at once. Plus, arm shares are, uh, well, they're still looking good ahead of the open, looking to extend those gains from yesterday. It was the biggest IPO of the year and quite a significant day. And rally pause. Stock index futures little changed after the best day for equities of the month. Let's begin, though, with the UAW striking against Detroit's big three simultaneously for the first time in that union's history. Our Phil LeBeau is in Wayne, Michigan, after talking to GM's Mary Barra and joins us with more. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl, we are outside of the Michigan assembly plant. It is the Ford plant where they build the Ranger pickup truck as well as the Bronco SUV, a very popular model. Here's what this strike is doing in terms of its impact, not just at Ford, but also at GM and Stellantis. Total number of workers around approximately 12,700, just under 13,000 UAW members who are now on strike at the Ford plant here in Wayne, the Stellantis plant, that's the Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio, and the GM plant just outside of St. Louis in Wentzville, Missouri. All together, those plants represent about 15% of the Detroit 3's U.S. production. Let me say that again, 15% of the Detroit 3's U.S. production. Here are some of the strikers talking about the offers that have been made of a 20% pay hike and why that's not enough at this point. It's a start, but it's not, you know, where it should be. So. We just got to, you know, keep fighting for what's right. We're ready to roll. We're going to hit it hard. and We're just going to go from there and say, if we got to be out two, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it takes to get what we need to get. Take a look at this. This is General Motors and the Wentzville facility that builds their midsize pickups. We're talking about the GMC uh, Canyon as well as the Colorado uh, pickup trucks and their full-size vans. It runs three shifts, five days a week. Earlier today when we talked with Mary Barra, we asked her just how much of an impact is this strike going to have on General Motors and how frustrated is she right now? Here's what she had to say. I'm extremely frustrated and disappointed. We don't need to be on strike right now. You know, we put a historic offer on the table that not only has very significant uh, gross wage increases, you know, total through the contract, over 20% that compounded is 21%, but we also have uh, job security. We maintain world-class health care. There's so many aspects of this, uh, of the offer we have on the table that I think uh, really is going to resonate with our employees. So we didn't need to be here. As you take a look at how shares of Ford, GM, and Stellantis are indicating before the open today, keep in mind that there are no negotiations scheduled for today. There will be a UAW rally in downtown Detroit later this afternoon. Guys, I think that we are looking at a strike here 
that it's not going to be resolved anytime soon. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't come to an agreement soon, but I don't sense that we're going to see this resolved by Monday or Tuesday. Uh, it's a possibility. I just don't see it happening. Why, Phil? I think they're too far apart, and I think the UAW has leverage right now. Maybe being blunt with you, I think that's the way that Sean Fain looks at this. He believes that he can get much better than 20%, much better than the elimination or the reduction in the number of tiers. And tiers is where you hire a worker at this rate, eventually they make it to the top rate, but it takes a number of years to get there. They want that gone completely. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to get it completely gone, but they uh, are pushing in that direction. So from their perspective, they believe that they have leverage right now. Do they? How disruptive is it going to be to these to these automakers? Initially, you're not going to see a, a run on these models where you can't find it in a showroom. But you stay on strike. If these guys stay on strike, it won't take long before Ford dealers are saying, I got customers who want to buy a Bronco and I don't have enough Broncos. I don't know the exact inventory level for the Bronco, but you go out four or five weeks. That's when that starts to happen. And that's really where you see the impact. Look, every day there's a strike. There's a financial impact for each of these automakers. The farther it goes, if you go two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, that's really where you start to see the, the big dollar impact for the automakers. Phil, you know, on that impact, what at the very top of the ask here, in terms of compensation and benefits as a percent of overall cost yep. structure, I know the UAW says something like 5%. What, what are the real numbers? Do we know? In terms of what they get right now and in terms no. of what they're looking for, David? In terms of what, right, were they to get to the high end of what they're asking for? I'm just trying to understand what the margin picture will look like from the perspective of Wall Street here for these sure. automakers if they actually give in to the, let's call it the highest end of demand here from the unions. Well, we asked Jim Farley that yesterday. He said, look, we couldn't do that. We could not afford to give them the full amount that they are asking for. If we did, this company would be bankrupt in a matter of years. Uh, Percentage-wise, David, I think you're looking, if you gave them 40% raises, you would likely bump up into the 7-8% uh, percentage of revenues uh, compared to where they are right now, which is about 4, 3.5-4%. So it, it would have a substantial impact. Uh, and again, Jim Farley was clear yesterday when he said, we just can't do it. There is a limit to how far we can go. Phil, we do expect to hear from the president today. Uh, there's been some reporting that the White House is trying to see what kind of aid they could give, at least to the smallest uh, suppliers that might be affected. Um, yep. I mean, but a lot of a lot of takes about how limited are uh, to what degree the White House's hands are tied here. They are tied to a certain extent. Look, we're serious. We still see production going for 85 percent of the models built by the Detroit Three here in the United States. So those suppliers, while they are impacted, there's going to be less, you know, for suppliers coming into this plant here in Wayne, Michigan, but they're not completely shut down. So there is an impact. I'm not dis discounting that. But the White House is going to have to look at this and say, how much of an impact will there be for suppliers? And, you know, when do we really start to see that hit those suppliers? Phil, uh, busy morning. Uh, Phil in Wayne, Michigan, as we keep our eyes on the strike. We'll talk soon, Phil. Uh, thanks so much. Meanwhile, guys, streets trying to get their arms around the numbers here. Deutsche takes a crack at it, says the weekly production on these particular plants, 
averaging about 3,000 units a week at Ford, 4,500 at GM, EBIT losses per week in the 40, 50, 60 million dollar range, which Deutsche thinks is manageable for now, uh, but it reflects the union strategy not to paralyze everybody, but just inject enough uncertainty uh, and to create unawareness of what may what they may do next if we don't get anywhere. Yeah, Bank of America says that it's a hit to GDP. Um, annual run rate of 1.6 to 2.1 percent. Obviously, we'll know more given how long it lasts. But the hit comes from industrial production and manufacturing, not as much from consumer spending because the union apparently will be paying workers during the strike. They also don't think it's going to be as big of an impact on inflation, though it does create upside risks for inflation, both on used and, and new cars. However, according to Bank of America and their, and their analysts there, that the, the manufacturers have been ramping production. They do have adequate supply. And there are increased signs that consumers have weakened their spending on autos. So perhaps not coming at the best time for peak leverage for the UAW in that sense. Right. But to Phil's point, we could be having a different conversation if this strike is still going on three or four weeks sure. from now, correct? Yeah, shortages. Yeah. Right? It, it, it will be a different a, a different dynamic, perhaps, at that point. The other question is what, and you mentioned the margins and what a wage hike would mean. You know, UPS, a lot of people have been looking at that. The stock has been very weak in the last few weeks. The CFO did an interview overnight. You know, their, their margins are getting squeezed on the back of these higher oil prices now and the, and the higher wages. Remember, everybody's looking at that as the Teamsters got a pretty significant bump up there and what that's going to do for profitability. If you look at the year-to-date chart, it's underperformed yeah. the market. Uh, and after PPI yesterday, uh, one six year on year, highest number since April, big uh, pieces being written about today is whether or not we need to revisit the corporate margin story because the general sense has been Q2 results were about margins. Now it's got to be about demand and how much more do they need if in fact margins are going to be compressed. Depends on the wages, but but certainly the, the oil data, I mean the oil prices have moved up and that that's painful. We saw some of the retail stocks underperforming this week. That's what happens when you see higher oil prices. Traditionally, right, it puts a damper on consumer spending. We know consumers have been prioritizing the basics, the staples, and they haven't been buying as much on the on the discretionary items, even though, guys, the retail sales numbers were not bad. Nine out of 13 categories grew there in terms of, of sales. It comes off of a strong July and August moderated, but the core retail sales, seeing a bump up, was actually a surprise, and that's going to filter into GDP. Yeah. As for the broader markets, uh, on track for a positive week. S&P Nasdaq up four of five. You did have the VIX at a 44-month closing low yesterday with that 12-handle. B of A today, uh, Savita Subramanian says it's pretty much impossible to be bullish on valuation right now if you look at the S&P as a whole on a market cap-weighted basis. But equal weight, more in line with historical average, just shows you how much the big companies are skewing that kind of collides with what Griffin told you yesterday about yeah, no, where he, we are. He, he was a little more nervous about, about the rally continuing. Here's what Ken Griffin said yesterday. I'm a bit anxious that this rally can continue. You know, obviously, one of the big drivers of the rally has been the, the just frenzy over generative AI, which has powered many of the big tech stocks. I like to believe that this, this rally has legs. I'm a bit anxious we're, we're sort of in the seventh or eighth inning of this rally. Well, part of it has been the, the soft landing story. Are you a buyer of that? The fact that we just haven't gone into recession despite 525 basis points of tightening. So 
it takes about a year to two years for an interest rate hike to work its way through the economy. It's not instantaneous. We're now at the point where we're going to see the impact of these hikes really start to play out. We're seeing the job market starting to weaken. There's been, there's been a number of news stories in recent weeks about how companies are willing to pull back with their pain for, for starting roles. We're seeing uh, signs that consumers have had enough in terms of price increases, that they're starting to walk away from products they're trying to push through price increases. So there's signs here that we're, we're heading very quickly into hopefully the soft landing, potentially a more difficult scenario moving into mid to late last year in terms of, of an actual recession. Always interesting to hear from, from Griffin, who runs the giant hedge fund, Citadel, of course, top earning hedge fund in history. And multi-strategy, David, that's up almost 11% year to date, coming off of a record year last year. I thought that it wasn't all out bearish, but it certainly was more cautious on the soft landing view, on the fact that stocks can continue because the headwinds are piling up and because he said we're we feel the rate hikes with the lag, and we're just now starting to see it, which is a valid argument. It's what something economists have been trying to figure out. Uh, it's always worth listening to him and his view. I mean, and obviously, you know, I don't, I don't know how much you got into Citadel every day in terms of just a percentage of the volume overall, given the size of that hedge fund, not to m- mention their market making. Uh, they are an enormous influence. Enormous, yeah, and we talked about it. And we, and we taped a whole nother chunk of content, including Citadel, his expansion right. in Miami, some of the strategies he's interested in. Commodities had a good year last year. He's interested in that as well. You're, you'll be able to hear it Monday night. We're running it um, in prime time on CNBC. CNBC leaders, 8 p.m. That's when it Eastern is, Monday time. night. Monday okay. night. Wow, you're making us wait a long time for that. It's good content. He talked about DeSantis. It was good content yesterday, too. Yeah. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. I thought what was notable also on the whole macro picture is he says he doesn't expect the Fed to get to its 2% inflation target unless we have a severe recession in the United States, which doesn't mean that the Fed's going to have to keep hiking rates. He thinks maybe one more one more rate hike. But because of all the fiscal stimulus that's out there, and he really, I think, sounded quite an alarm bell about what's happened with fiscal spending and the impact that that could be having on the bond market this year as a headwind to both Fed policy, inflation, and the markets. Yeah, uh, real yields on the 10-year approaching two. Uh, that's close to a 14-year high. Interesting to hear him tell you small chance maybe of one more hike, yeah. which kind of puts him in the camp of City and Bank of America as opposed to Goldman and Morgan Stanley who say no hikes. In fact, Morgan Stanley is looking for a cut in March. Cut in March. Yeah. So, so here's what will be the most interesting and market potentially market-moving thing to watch next week at the Fed meeting. We know they're not going to raise rates. They've telegraphed that. Nobody expects that. There might be one in November and December. But the real news is going to be we get a new dot plot, the SEP, the forecast from the Fed as far as what they're going to do next year. And that will be the signal of how hawkish they are, how much they think they're looking to cut into next year. The market is looking for cuts in the first half of the year. So that's where they'll be able to sort of signal if they want to walk the market away from those cuts on the higher for longer side of things. If they if they move if they if they tighten a little bit their outlook for next year to 75 basis points of cuts, which is what economists are expecting for the next year, that's still less than the market's expecting. Yeah. All depends on the data, of course. We've gotten some this morning in export-import prices. Now industrial production and UMICH later on. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. 
Yes. Good morning, Carl. We're awaiting our August read on industrial production, and it is hitting the wires as I speak. We're expecting a number up one-tenth of one percent, much better, up four-tenths of a percent. Up four-tenths of a percent. That is one solid number. As a matter of fact, when, when, how far back do we have to go? That is the second best number, actually the third best number of the year, third best number of the year. So we want to pay close attention, especially after it's coming off of a very solid up 1%. Utilization, also much improved. 79.3 expected, 79.7 is the number we have. That's the best number of the year. You have to go back to November to find a better number. And just for the sake of context, I do want to point out, September of last year at 80.83 on utilization was the best going all the way back to 2008. So you can see that we've started to drift lower. Should be no surprise. Squawk on the Street will return after a short break. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Shares of Arm appear to be ready to extend some of those uh, very strong gains yesterday that it saw in its first day of trading. Of course, the company returning to the public markets. It's a chip designer, and it did finish that session yesterday. Look at that. Added about a quarter of its market cap. Uh, 51 was where it was priced, but now exceeding 64 or $65 billion in market cap. And that's actually above where Masa and SoftBank recently bought back. 25% of the company from the Vision Fund at $64 billion. Uh, of course, still a lot of questions in terms of that valuation. Given it's at the very high end right now, a lot of things are going to have to go right for the company. But you have to give uh, a, a, a shout-out to the underwriters here. Um, they did a very good job, and it's not an unimportant one given how important it is to get the capital markets open when it's uh, when you're speaking of IPOs. We've got another one coming next week with Instacart we can talk about a bit. But when you talk about ARM, of course, one of the key questions will still be, okay, you're saying you have revenue and profit growth. Is that going to come from volume or is it from price? I asked that question of Renee Haas. How much of the future growth in revenues and profits for the company, and you discussed the growth trajectory is going to be simply price increases. Because I do believe there's a view, and perhaps you can address this as well, that you're not capturing the appropriate value for your product. Um, is that a key component of the growth that you see? Uh, to some level, but more broadly, we see huge opportunity to deliver a lot more value uh, up the stack. One of the things that we see around these complex chips being built today is that they just take a long time to design, much longer than they did. And the cycle times to build them get longer and longer. So that puts a lot of pressure on our customers who are trying to design these complex SOCs, which gives us 
an opportunity to provide more. So we're doing something around what we call subsystems, which are full blocks or full packaged uh, entities around our IP. By delivering those subsystems, we save customers significant time of development. We uh, accelerate time to market. And as a result, we can get more value for that delivery. So what we think is going to happen for us over time is by delivering these blocks, and we see this, by the way, David, applies to just about all our markets, automotive, networking, cloud data center, PC, game console, and of course mobile, they're all great fits for it. So I think going forward, uh, pricing is a component of it, but I think more importantly, by delivering more value, we can get better pricing in general and drive growth. And that's going to be a key here, but Sarah, the market seems mm -hmm. to be a believer. Look at what's going on right now. Obviously, remember, it was a relatively small slug given the overall size of the company. Although, not, I mean, still four and a half, five billion dollar offer. Good sign for the capital markets. Good sign for risk appetite, I would think. I, I read the uh, Bernstein note, did you see this morning? They initiated at hold, and it, it wasn't as enthusiastic. Thinks that the price is full. Say The analysts there think we're entering a post-smartphone era where the, the next growth is going to come from um, high-performance computing and the Internet of Things, and they just don't see ARM in that strong of a position. They also think that the ARM AI story has been a little exaggerated and say it's wrong to compare it to NVIDIA. Yep, and that is that is one of the criticisms. And again, we are getting up to some fairly significant uh, valuation uh, at this level, Carl. Uh, meantime, guys, a lot more news to get to as we take a look at futures. We'll get to uh, these reports on Disney, uh, Instacart, of course, Dash, Adobe's going to open down, Lennar, Nikola, and keep our eye on the strike when we come back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. both uh, consumer as well as SMB resilience, I think continues. And uh, for a long time now, we've been talking about will this customer confidence continue? And, and I think we've all been uh, pleasantly surprised by how much, uh, you know, it's, it's sustained. That's Adobe, Shantanun Ryan talking about the quarter last night on overtime. Stock's going to open down about four. Um, nice beat. In fact, the best beat in a couple of years. Revenue in line. Uh, the guide is above for Q4. Uh, B of A reiterates a buy, David. But as Jim has said, kind of like NVIDIA and Oracle uh, going into the print close to year-to-date highs, Jim said there'd be pressure on the name. He did. Uh, he also said it was an important quarter, and, and certainly that may prove to have been the case. Um, you know, we'll see how the, how the stock performs from here, uh, Sarah. But at this point, of course, it doesn't appear that it is being positively received. It is by the analysts. All the analysts are taking up their price targets and they're yeah. so excited about the future. I wonder if there's a little maybe AI fatigue in terms of, because a lot of the notes say, you know, just getting started, a lot to look forward to. This is an AI story. Well, we've said many times, a lot of the products are going to be based certainly on generative AI, and Adobe is fairly early here, are still to come. I mean, really not until 2024, if not after. And your point's a good one. Will there be fatigue as we sort of, the market focuses on the real beneficiaries right now, obviously NVIDIA, perhaps Microsoft, with the introduction of Pilot very soon in terms of at least general availability. But then after that, is there a vacuum? 
Let's get the opening bell here and the CNBC real-time exchange at the big board. Grupo Exito, operator of grocery stores in South America, celebrating its listing. And at the NASDAQ, it's Numora Therapeutics, focused on the treatment of brain diseases, celebrating its IPO. As we see some uh, breath fill in here, again, just circulating south of 4,500. Uh, watch energy today. Oil is off of the highs, but we got to 91.15 this morning. That's the highest of the year, highest since November of last year, in fact. Um, interesting metric out of J.P. Morgan last night, guys, that the OPEC Plus Alliance is holding back about 4 million barrels a day. That's the largest uh, holding back in terms of production, excess capacity, ex-recession in 20 years. So, so they are really- So it's to tighten. Yeah. So that's part of the story. And, and the other story is that the U.S. economic data has come in better than expected. That's been a theme of the week. And then today we got, for change, some upside surprises on China, industrial production and retail sales, which is always important for the energy and the commodity market. I, I find it interesting, Carl, that the market has been resilient and is higher for the week. It's, it's week, week opening weaker, but all the major averages are up for the week and almost a percent. I think the Nasdaq's up almost a full percent for the week, given... Yields have stayed elevated, and the data's come in hot. CPI, PPI, I'm nothing extreme. I don't want to overplay it, but industrial production, jobless claims are still very low. So is good news good news now where we're, we're, we're good with the resilience of the economy, even if the Fed, it means the Fed is going to have to stay higher for longer? That, that feels to me like something last week was about higher yields and the market sold off. This week, higher yields and the market's hanging in there. Um, on, on fuel prices, you know, we did obviously see adjustments from many of the major airlines in terms of their profit outlook as a result of higher costs for fuel, although demand doesn't seem to be um, appreciably affected, and many of them kept, if not uh, actually increased, in, in some ways, the revenue outlook. But you saw, there it is, American and Delta, everybody's sort of coming in with their expectations. Um, for the first time, I heard somebody question Amazon. You know, it is an enormous provider of logistics. They spent they spent a lot of money on fuel too, as does, of course, whether it's FedEx or UPS. Unclear whether that really does creep in if we maintain these higher levels uh, that we've recently seen. Could for, be a double uh, whammy too. I mean, an 11 percent surge in one month in gas prices could hurt consumer spending. Yes, that no too. doubt about it. And that and that's I think a question we have to look at. And, and, as we enter the most critical period of the year for these retailers, which is the holidays, right? Thought it was notable, David, that after the successful ARM debut, Instacart comes out with a, an update to its S1 where it is raising the price. And now the valuation is about $9.9 .9 billion, took up the range by two bucks. It did. Strong showing from ARM, I guess. Make um, them feel more confident? You know, I think the expectation for this one is given the incredibly small offering size as a percent of the overall company, and really in, even in dollar-wise, that it's going to be priced pretty well. It, there are a lot of questions, though, Sarah, about the true growth yeah. um, for you know in terms of their marketplace and uh, overall. They're, they're, it's not great uh, top-line growth there. That said. When it comes to the actual offering, remember, they're going to, I think it's about 600 million shares. Many of them are secondary. There is a primary offering as well. But you've also got a number of investors stepping up uh, for as much as they're calling them cornerstone investors for about 400 million of the 600 million. That's a $200 million that's offering, essentially. You can imagine, given that's 2%, 
let's call it, or you know, it's, they're selling 6%, so um, it's nothing. And that could set up for simply a, a, a supply-demand equation that is very favorable for the performance early until it's you actually point. get to when everybody's locked up, which in its own way becomes the IPO, because that's when you really get price discovery. So there's that, there's the scarcity, and there's the fact that they have brought the valuation so far down that they're yes. making it look reasonable, according to the analysts. This was, a st this was a company that was valued at almost $40 billion at one point. And you're right about the, the growth. It's an interesting time to go public, given their, their growth has slowed down. The, the folks, the analysts that like it and the industry watchers that like the stock say online grocery is still in a, in a growth period as a vertical. The question is, 70% of online grocery is dominated by the large grocers. Walmart goes right. at it its own way. Kroger has a partnership with Instacart, but how long will that last if Kroger wants to do it themselves? Instacart in the, in the S1 says they need us 5% of their revenues. They're not going to just let us go, some of these big retailers. But that continues to be the discussion. That and some competition from the likes of Amazon or DoorDash or, or Uber. Uber. Can they just get into the online grocery game? They have gotten in, but yes. Instacart has a first mover advantage. They do, but again, to your point, top line growth here is not significant. That does not mean that it is not going to be a successful offering. And again, you are watching ARM shares, which are, and they're super, which uh, day two, still hanging in there. We'll see how it performs, but I mean, it's 66 with a 51 price yesterday. That has gone very well, and that's certainly a positive sign, not just for SoftBank, uh, which owns 90%, but also for the overall um, IPO market that we talk about so often. Yep, I already got another initiation on ARM today out of Needham. They initiate hold. I think New Street was the first out of the gate with the 58 target, uh, so that's already been uh, succeeded. Um, as for Dash, um, downgraded today over at Muffet. They say, what happens when 43 million Americans see an average of $225 a month come out of their pockets in October? If we've learned one lesson in econ class, there is no free lunch. They go to market perform, a target of uh, 93, and then you see Dash moving to the NASDAQ, and, uh, a move that we don't see that often. Yeah, I thought that was a good note because they really went through the numbers on that. And, and one of the things I learned is they quantified the exposure, Moffat Nathanson, that is. DoorDash and Uber Eats have a greater proportion of monthly average users in the 25 to 44-year-old cohort than any other company that they cover, 65% and 67% compared to the e-commerce industry average, which is more like 60%. So they, you know, that's the age cohort, unfortunately, that's going to have to pay these, these student loans. I think it's also part of the bare thesis on the economy and the consumer spending story. This is an economy built on spending. If we do see a hiccup like that, and again, there's the strike, there's the student loan payments, there's a potential government shutdown, there's a few shocks that we need to get through, potential shocks for the consumer and for the economy as we look into the fall here. And that's one of them. October 1st, they have to start paying those, those loans back, even though there's evidence, that, Carl, that's already happening. Treasury is seeing an increase already from Department of Ed. Uh, the consumers are arguably ready for this, already making adjustments. A uh, bunch of reactions, uh, David, to the reports on Disney today. Uh, Wells, uh, in our view, uh, a deal at eight times can work. Actually, some of them, Rosenblatt in particular, points out that it adds a pretty nice argument to the breakup value of the Disney equity 
and as a result, a lot of media names up at the top of the list today. Yeah, uh, there's some uh, some of the text from from Wells Fargo, as you point out, uh, Barton Crockett, who we have on frequently, also coming out, uh, specific in some ways also to the benefit potentially of an ABC acquisition were it to happen for Nexstar. Uh, and many of the analysts simply trying to figure out, because they don't break it out anymore, what exactly is the EBITDA from ABC and the stations. Remember, this all began a couple of months ago when I sat down with Bob Iger in Sun Valley, and he basically said, listen, ABC is no longer core. Um, he more or less said that. That does not mean, though, that this is the priority. My understanding has been since that um, interview, really, ESPN continues to be the priority in terms of when we talk about a deal, uh, finding a potential partner there. Uh, and my sense has been that that continues to be the case. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be incoming uh, inquiries from Nexstar, from Byron Allen, another uh, name that's been reported, of course, his company owning um, the Weather Channel amongst other assets. Uh, some Always some questions there about how you finance these kinds of things and whether it's for Byron Allen or for Nexstar. Also, the basis for Disney is so low, it would probably need to be structured as a reverse Morris Trust in order to, uh, to not trigger uh, huge taxes, huge gains, uh, taxes on gains. Um, I think we just got to wait and see. Uh, it's not clear to me yet that there's going to be anything near term here in terms of, of ABC. But of course, again, these inquiries are, are coming. They, I don't believe they've hired a banker to actually handle it for them. He has brought in Kevin Mayer, for example, and Tom Staggs, former senior executives at Disney, to help sort through some of these important initiatives in terms of especially on the deal front. And just to remind you, take a listen to Iger's comments from a couple of months back. We're talking, I guess, ABC, the network, the, the stations, but then the cable networks as well. Yes, correct. FX, uh, Nat Geo. Is it possible you would look to sell them? We're going to be expensive. I think if you can, you can interpret what that word means. You know, we're just getting at that work, but we have to be open-minded and objective about the future of those businesses. Yes. Meaning that they're not core to Disney? That they may not be core to Disney, yeah. Now, there's clearly creativity and content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business and that has delivered great profits over the years is definitely broken. And we have to we and, and we have to call it like it is. A lot of things he said during that interview that called it like it was. People still uh, sort of focused on it to a certain extent. But again, ESPN, my sense based on reporting, was really the priority coming out of the gate in terms of not selling it, but finding a uh, finding perhaps a strategic partner. But if they get something coming in on ABC that really makes sense from a financing perspective that it can get done, from a regulatory perspective that it can get done, from a tax perspective that it can get done, and from a price perspective that it can get done, they very well may take it. But they're sort of in early stages yes, of those talks? I, don't, I, yeah. I think this is early. I think this is just stuff that's getting floated. And it's not clear to me that it's going anywhere right now. Right now, as in, you know, the next few weeks. Yeah. Another stock I'm watching today, guys, is, is Estee Lauder because it got some positive commentary from the analyst community for a change. This is a stock that has been really beaten up on concerns about 
the China recovery, the Korea recovery, the Southeast Asian, uh, South, Southeast Asian travel demand recovery, and, and more recently, the U.S. market share uh, recovery. The stock's up today because it, got, it did get some love from Redburn Atlantic, taking it from sell to neutral, saying they, they finally start to see an inflection point here in some of those changes, particularly in China and Asian travel. And again, when the data comes in better in China, Carl, Estee Lauder usually benefits from that. It's had a rough year, though, down almost 40 percent. Yes, Kramer has um, addressed this several times, uh, the difficulty that Estee Lauder and the split between Elf and Estee uh, year on year. If you chart those two, it's been it's been pretty That's remarkable. That's a value play yeah. with Elf. Yeah, and about Asia strategy as well. Lennar's a story, uh, down four and a half. Uh, 391 uh, does beat 351. Uh, but ASP's down nine, got a lot of people's attention. Uh, gross margin miss, SGNA was a little hot. Only $4 now separate Lennar from the 200 day, which it has not been below since November of last year. Kind of reminds you again of what Griffin told you, Sarah, that is that these real rates will bite at some point. Right. And the housing picture has been so interesting to watch and the strength of the tighter supply because it really hasn't been a story of high demand. These, the mortgage rates are biting and the higher rates impact the economy. Credit, credit card rates. Where are credit card rates right now? Like the highest since they've been since the 1970s and the, in the 20s. At some point, when we talk about lags on the economy, that's what we're talking about. Auto purchases, the, the, the purchasing decisions from consumers, home purchases card payments and delinquencies. It's why we've been watching the credit card data so carefully. And what is it telling us? It tells us that delinquencies are starting to creep up, but we're not at alarming levels. We're back to 2019 levels, which was sort of normal economy. But we're watching to see if that, that trend continues. What we've heard from the bankers, and they all spoke this week at the Barclays Financial Services Conference, is that consumer still is in pretty decent shape. I mean, even Jamie Dimon, who says you can't bank on that, has said that the, the deposits are still higher than they were pre-COVID, and that the consumer still has that cushion in place. The question is, what happens when, when it runs out? And if the employment picture weakens further, yeah, that's the kind of stuff Ken was talking about. The employment picture is still pretty strong. People it is. have jobs. Well, not just that, but re report Linda Yaccarino yesterday saying they're starting to hire back after the layoffs at X. These reports that Salesforce is going to hire 3,300 after the layoffs we saw there. Um, I mean, which which direction is the job market going in, especially on a week where I know uh, Apollo pointed out unemployment in California starting to spike and the separating from the national average more than it has in the past? The best indication of what's happening in the job market is the weekly jobless claims. If you really started to see employers changing their posture on employees and getting more cautious, you'd see a spike up in claims. And we're just not seeing it. We're at, what, 220? They came up 3,000 last week. There is not... Lay there are not mass layoffs in this country at this point. The question is, though, if policy hit with, with a lag, then will things change? Yeah, B of so a, far, we're not seeing it. Uh, Hartnett over at B of A today says he thinks the market probably buys the first negative NFP print. In other words, that's seen as good news, but that probably doesn't buy the second one. Because then we start to worry yeah, about the, the broader impact. Really We're not near, ne we haven't had a negative payroll no. print. And in fact, the, most of the payrolls prints have been stronger than expected. Haven't broken through 4% unemployment. Overall, that's, that's a good read. But, you know, a lot of people will say that's a lagging indicator, too. Um, worth taking a look at the automakers, given, of course, the top of the show. And interesting to note that Tesla is actually down and Ford and GM are both up. Um, 
not a secret of the possibility that the UAW would strike, but perhaps a bit of a surprise that the reaction would thus far be a positive one, and Tesla, which is seen widely as a beneficiary should the strike continue for some period of time, uh, is down. That said, we should point out, Tesla shares are still up 122% for the year. It's also the best performing stock on the S&P week to date. So yes, the already, anticipated I mean, strike benefit exactly. probably already in the in the name up 10 percent. Sell, sell on week. the news, buy yeah, or buy on the news to a certain extent yeah. in this yeah. case for Ford and GM. Uh, I don't know. Do we still mention Nikola now? Uh, but they are expanding uh, their dealer network to Canada, uh, up 13 percent pre-market. I think it's come off of the opening highs. And then uh, Jonas over at Morgan Stanley today reiterates an overweight on Rivian uh, as we continue to monitor sort of the effect of, uh, of EVs, not just on used car prices, guys, uh, but trying to see how, you know, what, how the, the big three uh, manage this. Because it's a lot of it is about the, e, the longer-term EV strategy and will be even after these negotiations are done. The Rivian's not part of the strike, so they've got that going for them. They do. Uh, not doing anything for the stock price today. As we pointed out yesterday, of course, when we talk about IPOs, that one was Quite a blockbuster, a very different time for the capital markets during that period of time. That was back when Instacart had a $40 billion market value, most market value, private value, most likely, back when Rivian was hitting uh, good old days. highs on its side. But the good old days. But hey, look, look at them moving that thing. Uh, I think, you know, not many people saw 65 or 66 for ARM when it was getting priced at 51. Not that they didn't think it would have a nice, strong opening, but that percentage move, I think, is somewhat of a surprise and certainly is going to be embraced by those who want to believe that the IPO window, I mean, Bob Bassani is going to be very excited, don't you think, <laughs> Yes, yes, he will. <laughs> he, he lives for this stuff, literally. Uh, as we go to break, watch Bonds today. Not done with the data as we await uh, Michigan at the top of the hour, but we have worked our way through Empire, import-export, industrial production today, and then rig count uh, later on this afternoon. Ten-year still elevated, close to 433, with the Dow down 90 to start this Friday. In Asia, um, you know, I do think that despite uh, the geopolitical tensions and, and the economic tensions in, in China, I think that uh, Asia is the place to be for the next 10, 20 years. Do you think you have an edge over the, the giant U.S. banks in Asia and China specifically? Not an edge, but I think that we can compete uh, in a... Look, we are, we are a global specialized player, so we, we can compete across every dimensions of banking. That was UBS CEO Sergio Armadi with me at the Economic Club of New York. There was a luncheon yesterday where I interviewed him. And, and one of the interesting news bites that came out of that, though he is long term very bullish on Asia and China and defended the view there, he doesn't think they're going to hit their growth target of 5% this year. Actually thinks they're going to come in below that in the 4% range as far as growth. But, but clearly, you know, is still betting big and betting the firm big. And I think it's worth talking about today because we saw some green shoots in the China data today. I hate that word, but it is appropriate here. And that's what investors are saying. Uh, August industrial production and retail sales were better. And retail sales in particular, 4.5%. In July, they were 2.5%. So that's good. It, it shows maybe the stimulus is starting to work. We know it's been flowing from China. Nothing major in terms of a bazooka that maybe the markets were hoping for, but it's been happening. People were looking at the in liquidity injections overnight, a little larger than expected. They cut reserve ratio 
um, rates on Thursday. So incremental moves to try to stimulate there may be starting to have an effect. Yeah, uh, industrial production also a beat over there. Uh, some discussion this morning about maybe how they're not exporting deflation in the way that we sort of were enjoying for a little bit. Goldman, though, does keep their Q3 target at least unchanged at 4.9 for China. So we'll see if some of these numbers can stabilize. The problem, though, David, is that, you know, once you start getting better China number, upside upside pressure on commodities, and then we worry about inflation, inflation again, again here in the U.S. and Europe. Yeah. Just when these central banks are trying to call it quits on the rate hikes. Maybe a bit early to call that. They were just talking about deflation in China. I know, but we're at $90 on oil. We are. We are. Interesting on a more geopolitical level. Uh, it appears she's gotten rid of his defense minister in the country. Hasn't, he hasn't been heard from for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, by the way, I haven't talked about this defense minister in China under investigation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. When we come back, the latest on uh, the UAW's historic strike against Detroit's Big Three and Umish in a moment. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.